The scripture reading this morning is out of Ruth, chapter 1, verses 11 through 22. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Yet I have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? And she said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. This is God's word. So I add my word of greeting to those you already heard in the precious name of the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Very happy to be with you here this Mother's Day, and I wish all mothers a very happy day. We wish to honor you. I have to tell you that um, I've never said in a service on Mother's Day that I haven't been keenly sensitized to the fact that there were people in the room, women in the room, who were not mothers and women in the room uh, who were not married or had never married. And uh, as well as being for the mothers among us, I want to say for any women in those categories, this is for you. This is for you. Now, there were traditions in the churches that I grew up in, which I never noted at First of Anne, and I actually asked for a, a raise of hands in the first service. And I, I saw, as I suspected, that people like me are in a, a very small minority. And what I mean by that is in the church I grew up in, near Atlanta, on Mother's Day, some people would, be, would wear a red rose. And that meant my mother's alive. And some people would wear a white rose, and that meant my mother's no longer living. And we're going to study today a woman who would have worn three white roses on this day because her husband and her two sons had died. It's appropriate that this book is named Ruth because Ruth is the heroine of the book. She's the one who's nearly perfect in everything she says 
and does. But the story is really about her mother-in-law. The story is really about Naomi, who's not perfect. As a matter of fact, she fails badly, but she succeeds nobly by the end of the book. This is the only book in the Bible which is written primarily, or primarily, yes, from a woman's perspective. Esther is really a book from Mordecai's perspective. This is a book about women, mostly the woman called Naomi and her loyal daughter-in-law. Let me just say that until Jesus was born, the Old Testament was like a jumble of scattered puzzle pieces. You know, when we were kids and we first worked puzzles, we had those indentations in the cardboards, and, and, and when we get older, um, we, we don't have those indentations anymore if we try to work a real puzzle, but we do have a picture. We do know what the thing is supposed to look like by the time it's finished. Until Jesus was born, Old Testament believers didn't have that. They didn't know how to fit together the pierced and rejected Messiah of Psalm 22 and the triumphant Messiah of Psalm 68 and Psalm 110. They didn't know who on earth Melchizedek was and what was that about. There are lots of things that didn't fit until they saw the picture. And when they saw the picture, then they said, ah, now we see. Of course, this is part of the picture. Boaz is a part of the picture. He is a pattern. There was a word that, one of the few words I ever learned in Hebrew, one of the much, far fewer words I ever remember. I was actually talking about this subject with uh, Dr. Ahmed about a month ago. He learned all the Hebrew words and never forgot any of them. And it's the word goel, goel. And it means kinsman redeemer. In the authorized version, which I'm paraphrasing a little bit today, I've got it in front of me, believe it or not, because it's the Bible I have with the largest letters. Yes, it's come to that. Uh, it says kinsman, but in later translations, it says redeemer. And he is, and that's the, that's the definition I was taught of Goel, the kinsman redeemer. And Boaz is a pattern of one to come. He is, he's a picture of the final redeemer. Uh, Jesus is great Boaz's greater son. Now we're going to attempt the impossible here. We're going to fly over all four chapters. We, uh, Jim read from the passage that we're basing the title on. The, the mother who insist on, insisted on naming herself. Don't call me Naomi, for my life has been bitter. Call me Mara, which means bitter. And we'll get to that in a moment. But we want to uh, begin in this place where we see Naomi, what we might call uh, laboring under the illusion in verse 15 of an irretrievable loss. Actually, I would say that that begins in verse 11. She says to her daughters-in-law, will you go with me? And, and she becomes, there's a kind of mocking irony that begins to enter into her case, the case she's making. She's making the case, hey, you don't need to go with me. You need to stay here. And she says, um, because of course, 
she came from a place of famine and she went to a place of harvest thinking that there would be a gain. But instead of finding gain, she found loss. She found the loss of her husband and the loss of both her sons. And now she hears there's a harvest back in Bethlehem. So she's going back to the place where she came from. And her daughters are loyal. They're the widows of her sons, and they're going to go with her. I can't reprise the whole story. Most of you know the story. And so she, she begins with this kind of uh, irony. Uh, do you think, that, you think I got more sons in my womb? You, you think even if I bore sons? I don't have a husband, but if I did have a husband and I bore sons, you think you could wait until they were old enough to be your husbands, that my children were, would be old enough to be your husbands, and that they could give you other sons? No, 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 no. No, go, go back. Go back, my daughters. Nobody can fix this. That was wrong. Now, if you have refused the salvation offered you in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have disdained his blood, and if you've scoffed at the proclamation of his resurrection, let me just say, there is a place of irretrievable loss for you a place of irretrievable, irrecoverable spiritual ruin. But if you're a Jesus follower, if you've pled the blood and the five wounds, there is no permanent loss for you. None. You need to get that out of your head. And as I will plead in a moment, even for those of you who never had something to lose, a wonderful surprise awaits. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. But we, we begin on this note of despair. It's all blackness. And let me tell you, it wasn't only blackness in the near past. It was blackness in the distant past. This is one reason we know that the narrative is true. That it's not some sweet little tale of romance and redemption to give a little insight into the, the life of David's great-grandmother, because Ruth was David's great-grandmother. But there, there's actually a lot of black squalor in, in the backstory to Ruth, which comes out. Ruth was a Moabitess, and uh, some of you will remember how the Moabite race was begun. It was begun by something we don't even want to talk about. Let me just say it's unspeakable, something that happened between Lot and his daughters in Genesis 19, while the smoke from Sodom was still rising. Now that's how the Moabitess tribe was birthed. At the end of the book, Perez is mentioned, one of the ancestors of Boaz, one of the ancestors of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was conceived in an act of apparent prostitution between Judah and his daughter-in-law, Tamar. And by the way, you know who Boaz's mother was? Rahab. And some of you will remember what her vocation was. Um, you see what God builds upon? You see these ashes that he brings blossoms from? You see this darkness from whence he brings forth light? And this is the reason why we know it wasn't a contrived thing. It wasn't a made-up romance. If it had been made up, that stuff would have been left out. 
So there were horrendous things, not only in the near past and the loss of this husband and these two boys, but there was, there was horror in the distant past when you see who the forebears, who the ancestors were of this people. And so we see it. She's saying, I got nothing for you. There's no hope. I don't have any hope. Go back. Every seminary student knows about Kyle and Dalich. Uh, Carl Friedrich Kyle and Franz Dalich because the greatest commentary on the Old Testament in 10 volumes was written by these German Lutherans of the 19th century, towering scholars in Hebrew and in the ancient Near Eastern languages cognate to Hebrew. And they were warm, devoted believers and Christ followers who spoke against destructive, anti-biblical, anti-God scholarship. And they're still in print. Even after over 150 years, they're they're still in print. It's, It's an amazing thing. Here's what Kyle and Dalich say about the mindset that brought Naomi to give Ruth such horrible advice. She was simply considering the earthly posterity of her daughter-in-law. She herself had been shaken in her faith and the wonderful ways and gracious guidance of the faithful God of the covenant, shaken by her bitter experience. I wonder if there's anyone like that in this room. I wonder if we have ever been so hurt, so disappointed, that it was impossible for us to speak of the gracious guidance and wonderful providence of the God of our covenant, the God of Israel. That's the place where Naomi landed. As a matter of fact, she fell so deep that she became a kind of anti-missionary. Did you notice that? She said to Ruth in verse 15, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back unto her people and unto her gods. Go back to your gods. See if you can make your gods work a little bit better for you than my God has, has worked for me. You see how deep she'd fallen? Let me just say that God has to overcome the error, the weakness, and the carnality of every missionary if any soul is to be saved. But God somehow saved Ruth. Even with a witness like that, he saved her. She said, oh, no, no, no. No, I'm going with you. And then the most beautiful and best remembered part of the book, the part that we hear so often at weddings, the part that I heard from my bride at at my wedding, entreat me not to leave thee. I'm going with you. I'm going to live where you live. I'm going to die where you die. I'm going to be buried where you're buried because your God is going to be my God. And see, that's why she's the hero. That's, that's why we named the book after her, even though it's really a book about Naomi because she's so perfect in terms of what we know about her. We um, see that Naomi, this is the third thing we see about her, that she gets to the point in verse 20 where she names herself. She gets home and 
her friends, they know her name. And they say, Naomi, welcome. We're so glad to see you after all these years. And she said, that's not my name. No, 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 no. My, my name is Mara. And Mara means bitter. I'm bitter. The authority to name is the authority of ownership. How odd Simon must have felt when somebody said to him, oh, you're not Simon, you're Peter. You know, what the, you know what he was saying? You belong to me now. How odd must James and John have felt when someone said to them, I'm going to call you guys Boanerges because you are the sons of thunder. I hope we don't feel odd because Revelation 3 says that one day we're going to get a new name. Did you know that? Did you know that Jesus has a new name for you? I'm thrilled because I'm tired of Ronnie, let me tell you. It's, it's so 50s. And, I'm, and by the way, if your name's Ronnie, okay, condolences. And if you like it, that's great. It just means you're more spiritual than I am. But we're going to get a new name. I never say Ronnie in a restaurant queue. Can you give me a name? I say, yeah, Sebastian. You know, I mean, I wanted something, you know, a little more romantic and European, but I have stuck with Ronnie, and my name's not Ronald, it's Ronnie, so thank you, Mom. Okay, so, but, but, but Naomi does this, and what she's saying is, I own myself, I write the caption to my portrait. Oh, no, you don't. No, you can't. You know what John 1 means when it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and then it says later, all things were made by him and nothing came into being that has come into being apart from him. And then he says, and then it says, in him was life and that life was the light of men. First of all, it means that he made everything. It also means that he owns everything. And it means that there was a caption before there was a picture. There was the word before there was the world. See, uh, naturalistic uh, philosophy says that somehow words and meaning bubbled up randomly from matter. That's a lie. Just the opposite is the truth. The meaning was there before the matter. But what it means is that Jesus writes the caption of our lives. Your life and my life is like a, li a library book. We didn't write it. We don't own it. We can't give it as a title. And one day we're going to have to hand it back. There's going to be a due date and we hand it back. And God is going to write the caption over our life, the title of our life. He's going to give us a new name. And Naomi was trying to overthrow all of that. I'm not, I don't, I choose not to believe that it was utter unbelief and, and blasphemy. And she may have even doing it in such a way to say, you know, I, I'm sure I deserved it. I'm sure God is good and he's high and he's precious and, and I deserved it. Maybe, maybe she did it in the most reverent way, but she shouldn't have done it. And it certainly wasn't a spiritual high place that she had come to, this kind of anti-missionary who told Ruth to go back to her gods. And we're going to fast forward here just a little bit because in chapter 2, verse 20, she remembers that she has a redeemer. Now, I don't have time to go through the Leveret marriage law from Deuteronomy 25, 25. I don't have time to talk about how it was even practiced in Israel before the law was codified because 
Um, it was a violation of that law that caused God to kill Onan, the son of Judah, in Genesis 38, one of the most, one of the saddest chapters in the Bible. I can't go into all of that, but let me just say that God made a provision for widows, especially child, childless widows, and there was a way in which um, the name of the husband could continue if there was a brother alive who was willing to take her as a wife and raise a child in her husband's name, in her dead husband's name. It was also a way to preserve the property. Now, this is miles from the giving of the law in Deuteronomy. This is after or late in the period of the judges. And it had, by that time, it, it wasn't necessarily the brother. And uh, Boaz was not the brother of Malon and Kilian, the sons of Naomi, but he was a near relative. And Naomi remembered him. And you know the story of Ruth placing herself among the gleaners and about the favor that she found and about the fact that uh, Boaz already knew about her, that her reputation had reached his ears. And after remembering that she has um, a redeemer and after observing that Boaz had noticed Ruth and had found, and, and Ruth had found favor in the eyes of this rich kinsman. Naomi breaks out of her abyss of hopelessness, of despair. She begins to hope. And she actually uh, hatches a plan. And she enlists Ruth. She recruits Ruth in the plan. And she tells Ruth in verse 4 of chapter 3, Go and cast yourself at his feet. That's what we're supposed to do before the Redeemer. Now, let me just say that in our contemporary sensibilities, it sounds a lot like a plan at seduction. It's not. It's a plan for marriage. She wasn't offering herself that night as a lover. She was offering herself as a wife. Really, she was asking him if he would consider marrying her. There are many reasons it was not immoral. Uh, one reason is the amazing rectitude of Boaz. Boaz would have never gone to a nearer kinsman and told him, you have a right to Ruth before I, if he had compromised the purity of Ruth himself. He was too noble for that. Ruth's own purity would have militated against a sink into immorality. But, Bo but, but Ruth says, uh, Naomi says, go, Ruth, go, my daughter, and cast yourself at his feet. And that's what she did. And he was amazed, as well as he should have been amazed. My favorite daily radio preacher is Alistair Begg, who once stood in this pulpit and delivered five great messages in the year 2000. Alistair imagines Boaz as uh, a figure like Tevye in Fiddler on the Roof. He imagines him as, uh, you know, with a 
gray beard and gray hair and a, and a pot belly and sort of a comic figure, 60-ish. Alistair is uh, justly celebrated and I'm justifiably obscure, but Alistair's wrong. And my guess is better than his. Boaz could have been 38 or he could have been 40. Ruth was probably um, not much older. She was probably under 25. And he was older by the canons of that day, but not, but not much older. I don't think it was purely a commercial transaction on her part that she needed somebody to pay her expenses and her, her maintenance. I think there was romance there. I can't prove it, but Alistair can apologize when we get to heaven. And I won't say I, won't say I told you so because we're not allowed to do that there. And that really frustrates me, but I'm sure I won't be allowed to do that there. And it's a sin for me to regret that, but it's a fact. What I want to do in the time remaining very quickly, because you know the end of the story. You know that he said, look, I would really like to marry you, but there's, um, you have, your mother-in-law has a relative with a greater claim, and we have to clear it with him first. And so he goes to that nearer relative. And at first, when he believes it's just a matter of property, um, he says, sure, I'll, I'll do it. And then Boaz says, fine, you have to understand that Naomi has a widowed daughter-in-law, and she comes with the package. And then he says, I can't do it. And basically what he's saying is that that will compromise my own children. I can't share the inheritance. At first he thought, you know, this old lady's going to die soon, then I'm going to get all the property, and that'll be great. But then he realizes, no, there could be other children that I have to share. You know, he didn't even want to take a look at her first. If he had seen her, he, he may have gone through with it, but he didn't. He said, no, doing. I'm sorry, you take her. I yield my right to you. And then Boaz makes it formal. What I want to do in the little time that we have remaining is I just want to talk about, first, how Boaz is like Jesus, and secondly, secondly how Boaz is not like Jesus. First of all, uh, he was rich, and Jesus blesses us according to his riches and glory. Uh, secondly, he, is, he was near. Jesus is near. Thirdly, he was able to redeem. Jesus is able to redeem. He's able to guarantee our future. Fourthly, he was willing to redeem. You see, the closer relative could have redeemed, but he wasn't willing to redeem. Boaz was willing to redeem. But I want to dwell the rest of the time on the ways he's not like Jesus. When you get to the end of the book, um, a, a miracle happens. Ruth is so winsome. She's so wonderful that she rehabilitated the people in that region, in Naomi's homeland, from racism. Now think of it, she leaves, she leaves Judea and she goes to Moab. Instead of coming back with a rich husband and rich sons, she comes back without a husband, without sons, only with a foreigner and a despised foreigner, a member of a condemned race. Think how hard that was. But by the end of the book, the Jewish women of the neighborhood who prized motherhood more than we do in the place where we live in our generation. 
and who had a bigger problem with racism than we did. They said, you know what? That Moab girl you brought back, she's better to you than seven sons. Wow. That's a miracle. But she wasn't better. Because there's, there's sentimentality there. And there's a hollowness, you know, because those boys are still dead. They're still dead. And that's a big deal. I'm going to share, forgive me for being personal, I'm going to share with you the, uh, you know, three hardest things I've ever witnessed. Okay. Uh, the day I was supposed to become senior minister of this church, August 15th, 1994, my daddy died. I was with him. He died slowly. He died in agony. At that moment, that was the second hardest thing I ever witnessed, but it only kept second place for 15 minutes. In 15 minutes, it became the third hardest thing because his 90-year-old mother entered the room. And she threw her hands up and put her head prostrate on the corpse of her firstborn son. And she sobbed. Now, even those things are like a low plane to something that happened nearly 40 years ago, which is like a high mountain. It's, it's really the Mount Everest of my life. It's the highest place. I've never been in a higher place than this. I've never been in a, a more transformative place. Because on November 7, 1981, we were presented with a stillborn son, my firstborn son. Our firstborn son was stillborn. It wasn't an utter shock. We knew there was no heartbeat. And it wasn't right at term. We were three weeks out, but his older sister had been born 16 days out, so we were ready for a baby, not a burial. And the obstetrician said, this may be hard for you, but I think it'll be good for you emotionally in the long run. He said, take the baby like the baby was alive because you've got a bonding instinct and it needs to be honored. So my wife took our son in her arms and she smiled at him. I've never been to a harder place than that. I've never been to a higher place than that. You know what? That was 40 years ago. You know what? Soon I will hug him. And I'll get to know someone that I never got to know. All right. I'm going to get a little bit nearer the edge for you here. Uh, there's some hints in the Bible. One hint is that in Matthew 19, 29, Jesus says, those who give up family for me will receive many times more. Now, maybe an unmarried woman or a woman who never became a mother, strictly speaking, did not give those things up for Christ, but there's a hint there. And the hint is that I can give back what never was. Because many more, you don't have many more family. You just have the family that you have. So Jesus said, I can give to you as a family many more than those whom you had as a family. 
And in Luke 16, in the parable of, actually it's not a parable because they're names. In the account of the rich man and Lazarus, when the rich man looked up from the pit, Abraham said to him, you know, in in life you fared sumptuously. And Lazarus didn't have anything. And now Lazarus is, I'm paraphrasing, now Lazarus is getting what he didn't have during life. There's a hint there. The pages of the New Testament are rustling with the prospect of something unbelievably wonderful. And if you're unmarried, by the way, you have a bridegroom. And you are a bride. You know, if we read the Bible superficially, and we don't come into this room to read the Bible superficially. We come into the room to to discover by the Holy Spirit what's really saying and where the encouragement is. We read the Bible superficially. Maybe we'll get a little down that it says there's not going to be any sun in heaven. There's not going to be any sea in heaven. We think, oh my gosh, I don't really want to go to a place without the beach. It also says there. There's not going to be any marriage in heaven. And depending on what your experience, that may be encourager or that may plunge you into despair. But let me tell you something. There's something greater than marriage in heaven. Not less than marriage, greater than marriage. Men do not light candles at the summer solstice at noon on a cloudless day. Did it ever occur to you that there is a person whose brightness brings a light over heaven compared to which the sun itself is a candle? Does it ever occur to you that there's a a pierced throne sitter in heaven who's lit his majesty to the sea and the majesty of the sea is a fragment of his own majesty? Does it ever occur to you that those things won't be there because there's something so much far greater there that they're not needed? I can't prove it. I can't defend it before a seminary professor. But those of you who are in Christ, you need to remember those promises. You remember that Jesus said about Elijah that Elijah will restore all things and there is a greater than Elijah there. You must remember that the Lord said, I will restore the years that the locusts have eaten. Joel 2.25, you must remember that he said, I will make all things new. You must remember that the things unimagined, you will have a husband. You will have children. You say, well, that's unimaginable. How unimaginable do you think biological children were before the earth was made? Just because we can't imagine what's in heaven. It says in 1 Corinthians 2, 9, but we have promises and we have hints. Remember that you have a redeemer. Look to him. Don't look back at your life and think about what was never there or what was there and was taken away. Don't look back and be bitter. Look forward and be blessed. My grandmother said in this room, I'm going just two minutes over time, she said in this room the day after Katie was married, April 1st, 2001, 
I introduced her. She had buried two sons and sobbed over their bodies. She came here to worship. After the service, she said, say, does Adrian Rogers, is he going to preach at Bellevue tonight? I said, yes, ma'am, I think. I said, yes, ma'am, I think so, but you know, you're a firstborn grandson is going to preach it back where you were this morning tonight. And she just kind of laughed and changed the subject. And uh, my, my treacherous, uh, the, the husband of my treacherous first cousin took her out to Bellevue that night. You see, she, just, she didn't just come to Memphis for family. She came to worship. There are two people in this room. who saw two grandchildren die slowly. But they're here to worship. There's a great-grandmother who goes to this church. I haven't seen her today. Her grandson died quickly and unexpectedly a couple of months ago. She's still worshiping. This is the story of David's great-grandmother. And it's the story of her mother-in-law who never got to become a great-great-grandmother. We can be sure that still... She worships. Remember that. And remember that Boaz came from Bethlehem. Amen.